Can you all hear me if I don't use the microphone? Is that okay? And I'd like to people maybe to come forward a little bit. I know you're all being very pious and sitting further away from the altar because it's the all-consuming fire of the Lord and you want to be safe. So, but come closer, come closer, okay? Right, so this evening, I know you've had a very full week and you're probably very tired. Um, my experience that is that nobody prays more than the Coptic Orthodox. The Russians like to think they pray a lot, the Greeks like to think they pray a lot, but nobody prays as much as the, as the Copts. Except when I talk to my Ethiopian friends, they say, oh no, no, we pray more than the Copts do. So, they do, okay, so we'll be humble and we'll, we'll give the credit to the Ethiopians and the Eritreans. Um, so I know you've had a very full week and so I hope you're not too saturated. And I also am afraid this might be a little bit academic. Abuna told me just, to, we want you to preach. It doesn't have to be too technical, he said, but I know all the cops, they're pharmacists, they're engineers, they're doctors, so you're all very smart people. So maybe a little bit of theology be okay on a Friday night and uh, I'll send the presentation to Abuna and he can, you can go over it on your own if you want later on. So I thought tonight, um, Abuna was saying, talk about where you feel the, the Spirit leading you. And so I was waiting on the Spirit all day and I was not getting anything and I was getting worried. And then I thought, you know what? I have a nice presentation that I did actually at the Coptic Church in Ottawa, where I, um, um, beloved students, Father George Mikhail and Father Anthony Murad, who are, were my students, but really they are my teachers. And uh, so I gave a presentation there, and I thought maybe that you would enjoy that as well, um, because it is all about uh, what is salvation in, in the Eastern churches, according to the Eastern Fathers. Something that we think we know, and we should know, but maybe there's new ways to think about it that we haven't thought through it as carefully as we should. And the other thing that Buna said is he wanted us to, uh, in the outline, to think about the joy of salvation, right? And so I thought, well, if we're going to have the joy, we better know the thing that we're joyful about. So maybe we'll be able to, to help a, a better rejoice in our salvation as we think about that this, this evening. So... Houston, we have a problem. This is from the, the movie Apollo 13, right? You know that the, uh, the, the space shuttle that uh, very nearly well, had a very tragic accident, in, but they, they managed to survive it. Um, but they didn't end up landing on the moon as they were supposed to, and they barely made it back to Earth. So everybody in the world realizes that we have a problem. Not everyone admits it, but everyone knows deep down. Muslims know this. The Buddhists know this. The Hindus know this. And... Um, that's what they're trying to do in their faiths as well, is they're trying to deal with the human problem, right? There's something wrong with the world, and not just that, but the things should be better than they are. When we say that something's wrong, we feel it should be otherwise. We, there, we see injustice, there should be justice. We see pain, and we think there should be health. We see sadness, and we think there should be happiness, right? And the scriptures tell us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's the problem. The problem is that we are the problem. The problem with the world is that we are ourselves the problem. We have made the world um, wrong and, we are, and it is because of us that it is not better than it is. And we want to know how it is that it's come to be this way. How is it that we have created this problem? Maybe if you've traveled, especially in the United States, you've seen a bulletin by uh, the uh, billboards on the side of the street that says, Jesus is the answer. And some cheeky atheist has put somewhere on a, on a bus, sign of a bus, well, and what's the question? Well, the question is, 
that there's many questions, right? What difference does it make? Does it, does my life, your life, the good things that I do, the bad things that I do, the truth that I tell or the lies that I tell, what difference does that make, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there suffering? Do all dogs go to heaven? Meaning, do the things that I love, do they survive? Do they matter to God? Do the things that I care about matter to God the way they matter to me? And you could think of many other questions, right? When we say Jesus is the answer, there's not just one question. Our whole life is marked by questions. From the moment we are born, children are asking why, 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 right? And God forbid that we ever stop asking that question, why, that we lose our desire to know, right? Lord, we want to know the disciples, right? Say they come to show us the way, show us the Father, right? Are you the one who is to come, right? But the biggest question, if we were to try to summarize it into one, is that we want to know why we die, right? Why do we die, and why does it hurt so much, right? Death is an ordinary part of life. From one perspective, we can look around us and we can even see, admire the logic, you know, that, the, that the, you know, a, 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 a grizzly bear dies and then the worms eat the grizzly bear and then the birds eat the worms and then something else eats the bird. Maybe the bear, it's another kind of bear comes along and eats the bird and then the cycle begins all over again, right? And then actually, and the bear decomposes and it creates life for the plants and, the, and that causes the trees to grow and then the insects live on the trees and so forth. So we can look at an ecosystem and we say, yeah, death is a part of life. It has to be there. That's how things work in the forest or in the jungle or in the ocean. But that's not how it works for us, right? When someone dies, we don't just accept, oh, they've died, that's fine, that's in death, is a part of life. No, we say, that's wrong. Death should not be. There should only be life, right? We should not have to lose those we love. It, they should not have to suffer. The body should not be separated from the soul. Something seems to us wrong with that. And we ask God why, right? And I think in his own way, every religion is also struggling with this. The Buddhists are trying to understand why. And the Hindus are trying to understand why. And the Muslims are trying to understand why. Well, the scriptures say, Remember, O man, that you are dust, and unto dust shall you return. This is actually used traditionally in the Latin church on Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Holy Lent when the priest imposes ashes on the forehead of the, of, of the people to remind them that we are dust, we will die. This is the problem that has to be answered. As Andrew Louth, probably the, one of the most preeminent uh, Orthodox theologians in the world today, Eastern Orthodox, says, death calls into question everything we try to achieve. Right? Death is that inevitable horizon of human life. No remedy for the human condition that falls short of death is of any use. So we've had many teachers, Confucius, Buddha, right? Moses, many gurus still to be found today, many people offering good advice, good teaching, counsel, the seven habits of highly successful people. You may have read that one by Stephen Covey. He's a Mormon, but he has some good ideas about how to get your life in order and your business and, and, and other things. Right? Many people offering good advice, but advice itself does not save us from death, right? Having a PhD does not save me from death. Being a pharmacist or an engineer or a doctor, many things which are very good things to do, but they do not save you from death. So this is the question that remains for us. 
Now the Christian tradition gives us a very specific answer for why we feel this way about death. That this, that the fact that we feel that death is unnatural, it's because death is unnatural, right? Even if it kind of makes sense when we look at the, bio, the biological world, it doesn't make sense in our, in our intuition. And that's for good reason. Why? Because God created us in his image, as the scriptures say, right? Kata, um, in, um, um, kata ikon, right? According to the icon, huh? in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And this image in which God has created us and the fathers have given us different answers for what exactly, in what does, does this image consist? But, the, but an important piece of this is that it's not just the soul. It's the soul joined to the body. For Saint Irenaeus, the image of God is the soul joined to the body because actually we're made in the image of Christ. The Christ who would be revealed, yes, much later on. But that was the one in whose image we've been made, the Christ who is destined to take on, by the will of the Father, to take on flesh and unite creation to himself. And so that union of the soul and body is not just accidental. It's not temporary. It's not a coincidence, right? Jesus did not rise again as a ghost. He was not just a spirit, right? When he tells Thomas to put his hands into his side, and into his, side, into his palms, it's one of the most important passages in the Gospels because it shows us that Jesus is resurrected in his body, that he conquers death by his passion, passion death, and resurrection, and he ascends into heaven in his body. Now, this is not easy to understand. I'm not saying I understand it, but this is what we confess in the creed that the body and the soul belong together. And therefore, salvation, one thing it is not, is a liberation from the body. And when a Buddhist or Hindu or a Jain, they burn the body, it's because they're saying the body doesn't matter, just the soul. The soul can move on. It can find another body, and that's okay. But not for Christians. The body we have, you may not like it. You may wish you were taller. You may wish you were shorter. You may wish you had more hair. I wish I had more hair, but I don't. Okay, some of you have, Abuna has a very nice head of hair, right? We may wish our bodies were different, right? But these are the bodies the Lord has given to us, and these are the bodies that are destined to be resurrected in glory. So this body, and this is why our worship is so engaging with the body, right? It's why we need to sanctify our sight and sanctify our smell and sanctify our ears, right? Sancti and sanctify our tongues, right? Why we need to make prostrations, right? Use our whole body because our body, we're preparing, we're participating in the redemption and we're preparing for the final redemption by all these things that we do at church. They're not just nice customs. They are nice customs, but they're much more than that, right? They're the way the body says, yes, Lord, I want to be saved, not just in my soul, but all of me. Take all of me, right? And every religion has some type of holy place, right? The, the, the Muslims have the mihrab, right? The Hindus have a temple when, where, a, where a, a priest offers a sign of sacrifice, right? Everybody has the idea that there's a holy place where a holy person does a holy thing. But here's something unique. Here you have the holy place, and you have the holy person, and he does a holy thing. But then that most holy thing is brought out here and put inside you. This is a temple, and this is an altar, right? And there is a sacrifice, but each of you becomes the temple. And within you, the sacrifice is, 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 is placed, right? Each of us becomes like a censer with a living coal placed inside of us, right? So we become the temple 
our bodies, not just our souls. If it was just our soul, a Buddha could preach, that's great, I heard you, I'm listening, my mind is converting, excellent, okay, thank you, and I'm on my way. No, that's not the whole gospel. Yes, the scripture is obviously important to take every thought captive to Christ, but our body needs to be saved, our body needs to participate in this redemption. So at them we were created, and Genesis tells us we had a kind of natural desire for God, right? A natural desire for God. For St. Irenaeus, he says, we were like children who were going to grow up into the fullness. We weren't in the fullness of our knowledge of God, but there was like these children who are so comfortable walking around here and like saw them bringing a boon. Is that your daughter? Boon was bringing you a, a little drawing and, and, and your a son, okay. And he was carrying, carrying the censer and they feel totally at home in the house of God, right? They're not afraid. This is Adam and Eve. They're not afraid. They have a natural desire for God. And then this is marred by sin. And the scriptures use the word missing the mark, hamartia in Greek. It's like an archer who's supposed to hit the bullseye and then the arrow just kind of goes off and a funny direction. It wasn't that he wasn't trying. It wasn't that there isn't a place it should go, but he missed the mark. Another image that's used is that of an infection. He's a doctor. He certainly used to work as a doctor, still a doctor. Um, I'm sure I would be glad to be in his arms if I was on my deathbed. He could take care of my soul and my body. It'd be very good, very efficient. <laughs> so it's, we talk about sin as an infection. So it's a missing the mark. It's an infection. It's a stain. Like on a stained piece of clothing, it's a breaking, a transgression. It's, I mean, literally in Latin, going over the boundary. There's many, many images we use, and it's important to realize that no one of those images captures the mystery of sin, right? They're all metaphors. Our language is filled with metaphors. Each one shows us something about this, this mystery of iniquity, the scripture says, but no one of them exhausts it. This is how kind of, uh, how enigmatic how insidious sin is. So Adam sins and he dies, and the Greek fathers especially, they make a lot out of this, and they say, when this particular, and I won't get a little bit technical, they get into how they read um, uh, a particular construction in, 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 in the book of Romans, um, and, and um, chapter five, and they say, actually, even though most people understand, they translate it as, so in Adam, um, um, all, all, all all died and therefore, uh, and, all, and all sinned and therefore all died, they translated in Adam, all died and therefore all sin, right? Meaning that death is not just the consequence of sin, but death actually becomes the catalyst, right? Which is actually really good psychology, right? And I say that, the, that we, yes, we sin, be, we, 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 we die because we sin, for the wages of sin is death, that's true, but we also sin because we'll die. What do I mean? Well, we're afraid of dying and we try to hide it from ourselves, right? So we surround ourselves with things to make us not think about that. We want to be comfortable and we want to have lots of pleasure in life. We want to have security in life and fill our life with things that will, that will help us avoid the reality of death, right? And those things, when we can't have them, maybe we grasp them. Maybe we steal them. Maybe we take them by force, right? Maybe we compel other people to give them. And the history of the world is filled with people who take, take, take things away from other people, like David, right? Taking Uriah's wife. He had lots of wives. Not a good idea. But he did have lots of wives. And then he takes the one wife he didn't have, the only wife, the wife that Uriah had, and he takes her wife. Why? Because he just had to have more, right? This is greed, right? And this fear, perhaps, of our own vulnerability and fragility, and we try to stave it off, right? That, actually, the Buddhists understand this bit because they talk about thirsting, tanha, grasping, right? Said, Buddha says, everything's suffering, the first noble truth, right? And the cause of suffering is desire, 
right? So far, so good, actually. Christians say, yeah, this is a problem. Everything is suffering, and the cause of suffering is that desire. But the thing is, the desire is not bad in itself. The desire is for that life that we had prior to the fall, right? That life that Christ came to give us, that desire to have the pleasure and the goodness and the comfort and the joy and the happiness, that's not wrong, because that's what heaven is about, right? But it's wrong that we grasp after things that actually can't fulfill us in that way and that we actually cause suffering to others so as to try to give ourselves now a temporary kind of comfort that will stave off this awareness of our mortality. So things are pretty messed up. This is the church, so I won't use the word, but things are, as we would say in English, effed up, right? And that's the right word, right? Because we have, we have words like that in English to start to talk about, you know, we say, when somebody says, what the F is going on? And he says, like, we don't quite have an adequate word to describe it. Well, that's what we can see when we look at the world and all the suffering, right? And St. Macarius, um, uh, which it's uh, St. Macarius the Greater, I think, you can correct me. He says, look within yourself and you will see heaven and hell, angels and the demons, right? Everything is actually here inside me, right? famous uh, uh, figure in British literature, G.K. Chesterton in the 20th century, um, it, and he's very, very prolific, and uh, 100 books, 4,000 articles, something like that, and one, he responded once to a, the, a newspaper where the, the editor had, had said, please, to, to tell readers, please send us in your response to the following question, what is wrong with the world? And he wrote back, say, dear sir, you ask what is wrong with the world, I am. Yours sincerely, Chicky Chesterton. You know, it's like that's actually the Christian answer. It's like again, as I said earlier, we are the problem. I am what's wrong with the world, right? David Livingston, um, he's, a, he's a secular scholar, but um, uh, but, uh, but a very good sort of uh, scholar of, of uh, in, in religious studies, and he has an interesting book on sort of method methods that are used to study religion, and he really gets this piece on Christianity, and he says. Christianity sees the problem is our will is disordered, right? Evil is not just someone else or something else making me do it. We often say this, the devil made me do it, right? Evil is my will that I turn in a direction. You know, we say conversion is actually turning with in Latin. And we make, uh, we make a prostration. We call that in Greek, we call that a metania. That's like a changing of mind. So we have to actually have to do something. We, we have to turn to God, and evil is when we turn away from God. I don't know if you guys ever read, um, or your kids maybe read the cartoons T Tintin. Ever seen Tintin? You know Tintin and Snowy? Right? Well, Snowy's a very clever dog, right? And there's this one scene, it's really great, kids get it, in King Ottokar's scepter, where Tintin has lost this scepter, and he needs this scepter to save the realm. And Snowy, the dog, finds it, and he's bringing it to Tintin, but then he sees a big bone on the side of the road. And he drops the scepter and picks up the bone. And then he drops the bone. Look at the scepter. And his little angel on his right says, you can't abandon Tintin. He needs you. Pick up the scepter. And the devil says, look at that bone. When are you going to get a bone like that? Come on, think about that. You can't let that bone go. Right? And then Snowy's going, he's in his head going back and forth. Uh, what am I to do? Right? That's all of us. Right? Snowy's like all of us. We are caught between the good that we, we should do. St. Paul says, the good I want to do, I do not do. And the, and the thing I should not do, I do. Right? So we cannot get ourselves out of this situation. Our will is disordered, and the more, that, the more that we choose the bad, the harder it is to get back on course, right? And undo the things that have been, that have done, have been done amiss. Hence, the gospel tells us that Christ himself is the one who has to save us. We can't save us from ourselves. 
So how does this salvation then get described? Remember I said that sin was described in various ways, an infection, a stain, a transgression, a missing the mark? Well, the corollary of that is that in the scriptures and in the church fathers, we see salvation described in lots of ways. And some of them might mean something to you and some not, and that's okay. There's various ways to grab onto this. It's like when you're rock climbing. You don't have to grab every hold to get to the top, but you do have to grab some hold, right? Or you're not going to get anywhere. And you have to look and see what hold can you actually reach. And we're all different. We have different educational backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, different personalities. You maybe do a Myers-Briggs test and find out what kind of personality you are. Well, certain things speak to certain people, and that's okay. And the scriptures give us a variety of images to try to get across this mystery of salvation, right? So St. Paul talks about it as deliverance, as release, as healing. Something that's done once for all in one sense, we have been saved. Something that's happening now, we are being saved. And something that is yet to come in its fullness, that we will be saved. So a priest I know, when a Catholic priest and evangelical was, at, was asking him on the street, something like that, so, you know, when did you give your life to Christ? And he said, I'm still trying. I'm still trying, right? Because, of course, we've given our lives to Christ when we were baptized. Or rather, our parents and their love for us have given our life to Christ, right? But then we need to, Im- we need to live into that, like lean into that, right? And that's this lifelong process, right? I'm sure if you ask the monks in Egypt, you know, have you, the monks have been monks for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So you're like, you must have totally given your life to Christ now. I mean, that's done deal. I kind of been at this for a while. You're an expert, right? Of course not. Of course not. They're going to say, you know, the more, the, 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 the closer I get to God, the more I realize how far I am from him, right? C.S. Lewis, the author of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia, says, the truly good man knows that he's a bad man. It's the truly bad man who thinks, yeah, I'm, I'm not so bad. I'm a good man. I'm, I'm, I'm not as bad as that guy over there, right? right? So there's this sense in which is this dynamic. Yes, it's been done once for all. Yes, it's being done now. And yes, it will come. St. John gives us in the first, his first epistle, Behold, what love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called sons of God and such we are. Right? So the model of adoption. I'm adopted actually myself. You see, my name is Brian Butcher, a very English name. My skin is brown. That's not a coincidence, because Indi- I'm Indian background. On my birth father's side, I met my birth parent family as an adult. And my birth family is all in India, actually. And, um, so, but when I was growing up, um, and my father was an evangelical ba- as a Baptist pastor, and I don't ever remember not knowing that I was adopted. Now, maybe being brown, my parents being white, kind of like kids figure things out sooner or later, you know. But also, the beautiful thing was, as I always remember thinking of adoption in spiritual terms. I always, I, I can never remember thinking of my own adoption and not correlating that to salvation, right? So my parents said to me, we chose you, we chose you and brought you into our family, right? And I was like, yeah, that makes sense, because huh? that's what God does to us, right? And, of course, we hear in the Epistle to the Romans the language of justification. Now, sometimes this is played up a little bit too much by Protestants to the detriment of others. But they're not making this up out of whole cloth. It's in the Scriptures. Being justified is not a Protestant doctrine. It's a scriptural doctrine. The thing is, as you see, there's other, other images as well, shall we say. So the doctrine of salvation is like a many-sided jewel, and you can turn it to one side and look at the other side, and we can never take all of it in all at once, any more than we can really wrap our minds entirely around evil. And we have the idea of redemption, liberation from the law, the exodus, right, in the Old Testament. 
So here's a few examples of the church fathers and what they think about it. So we have the idea of the ransom or the bait. You may have come across this. St. Augustine talks about the mousetrap. Origin of Alexandria. Alexandria. Yes, we like Alexander. Yes, we don't call him. You don't call him St. Origen, I don't think either. No, we don't call him St. Origen. But he was a pretty holy guy, frankly. But he just had some not so good ideas along with a whole lot of really good ideas. So don't, yeah, but he's... Um, He's a kind of a holy father, but we can't, we can't exactly call him saint. So, uh, Origin of Alexander also talks about this ransom that's paid to the devil, right? The devil has kidnapped us, the idea is the image, and Christ is ransoming us to get us back, right? If you've seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's actually the idea of what's going on there, right? The white witch, she basically takes Edmund captive, right? Because he's violated the deep magic, he's betrayed his fam friends, and family, so she has a right to take him captive, hostage. And Aslan, the lion, has to give himself as a ransom to get Edmund back. And because, of course, the deeper magic, because he gives his life freely, everything unravels, goes backwards, death turns to life, and Edmund is set free, and the White Witch is ultimately destroyed. St. Gregory the Great and uh, St. Rufinus, Bishop of Aquileia, both in, in Italy, um, they also talk about this idea, the image there on the right, of the baited hook, right? That God the Father puts Christ, as it were, like bait, and the devil tries to gobble him up. But the hook lands in the devil's mouth and rips his guts out, kind of thing. <laughs> and, then just, and therefore, then, everyone who's contained or has been gobbled up by the fish, right? All those who've died have been, and waiting for Christ's salvation are set free. Right? Because the hook tricks the devil. But not all the fathers speak in these terms. St. Athanasius of Alexandria, and I did just put this in because the Coptic Church of Alexandria, but a lot of the best theologians just happen to come from the Coptic from the Orthodox Church of Alexandria. So St. Athanasius is one of them. Um, so Athanasius says, Christ is the lamb whose blood redeems us. Just like right out of the a reading of, of the book of Exodus, right? They, just as the children of Israel had blood put on the, door, the lintel, the blood of the lamb, and, and, so, and so the angel of death passes over them, so Christ is the true Passover lamb. As St. John says, St. John the Baptist, right? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And St. Augustine again says, Christ is the victim and the priest. He offers himself on the cross. So he takes all that stuff in the book of Leviticus, which might seem a little bit dry if you tried plowing through that sometimes in your Bible study. Well, all of that was there for a reason, right? To show us, in, under the old law, the holiness of God and how our sin really does separate us from God and all the rigmarole that the priests in the old covenant had to go through to just to be able to approach the holy place and then only the high priest and then only one day a year, right? Be and because of the, the, the chasm between, you know, between us and God because of our sin and Christ's blood covers, Christ fulfills all of that and his blood effaces that separation. Hence, as I said, now, although we don't all go to the altar, but what is on the altar comes to us, right? So in the Old Covenant, only the, only the high priest could dare approach the altar, the, the sanctum sanctorum, the, the inner, the most holy place, right? And then only on the Day of Atonement, one day Yom Kippur, right? One day a year. But now at every liturgy, right? Every day if you want to come. Well, maybe I don't know if they have daily liturgy here, but probably several times a week, right? If not every day in Lent at least, right? You can come and what is most holy comes and comes, enters right into you. You, as I said, are now the, the, the holy place that receives what is most holy. And then we have the image of the cross as victory, right? 
The defeat is like a military image. Salvation is about conquering evil, conquering the devil, right? Christ is a warrior, right? There's a very famous hymn that's sung in the Western church. and goes like this. There's many, many verses to it. It's sung on Palm Sunday, but... The royal banners forward go. The cross shines forth in mystic glow. Where he in flesh our flesh who made, our sentence for our ransom paid. Beautiful image, right? Of Christ leading us in victory. So there's many, many images, and I think you can kind of line them up like this. Sin is alienation, it's captivity, it's guilt, condemnation, illness, being lost. Salvation is the opposite of all of those things, right? Reconciliation, liberation, forgiveness, vindication, healing, being found. This is Salvador Dali, 20th century uh, painter. It's an image of, unusual image of crucifixion because it shows, as it were, God the Father's perspective, right? God looking down on his son, dying for the life of the world. Christ, too, in this very famous icon, Christ of Sinai, I don't know if you've seen this, um, sure, I imagine you've seen this before. These two things are bridge. Why? Because Christ is the God-man. On the left side of this, on the side of that showing of the icon, it's in two dimensions, actually. And here you see it's in three dimensions. This is actually one icon. And the iconographer very, very cleverly blends these two. The one, you see the shading on the, on, on, on the right, Yeah. And you see how his shoulder and the hair, it's actually three-dimensional perspective. So it's like this world. And on the left is two-dimensional or hieratic, typical iconographic style to show the life of the world to come. And Christ, who is fully God and fully man, right, brings heaven and earth together. This is beautiful, one of the most ancient icons that we have that survived because it was in Sinai, it survived those nasty iconoclasts running around Byzantium as that was really a nasty period in our church history when everyone was smashing the icons and they couldn't get to these ones because they were like really out of the way in this monastery in, in Sinai, in Egypt. So I want to leave you with uh, this one and uh, here I start to work over towards my conclusion. I think, and it's not just because I'm, I'm, I want to kiss up to Abuna because he's a doctor, but the, the image of salvation, of healing, is really one of the ones that the fathers love the most because they can connect it to so many things. Salvation is healing. Christ is the physician. The church is a hospital. The holy mysteries are like medicine, right? And we're all patients, right? Patients who are either, all human beings are patients, who are either moving further into spiritual illness or further into spiritual health. Right? And the fathers interpret the parable of the Good Samaritan in this way. And I imagine you've come across this before, perhaps in one of the sermons that you've had or in, in catechism, but you have like Sunday school here, right? Something like that. Um, where they, and this you can see this in, in St. John Chrysostom, in St. Augustine, um, in Origen as well. Right? Beautiful way of reading this parable, which of course is not to take away from the, the importance of, of taking it very literally, like the works of mercy, right? To care for others the way to be a good Samaritan. But also we need to realize that before we can, as it were, be the good Samaritan, we need to realize that we are also the wounded man, right? The man who was wounded and in danger of death. So let's just look at the break this down a little bit. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this is Christen's commentary. 
So Adam, by trusting in himself, descended from paradise into this, the world, the fallen world, right? The world that we experience around it, which is not a paradise, right? And Jericho here, the father says, is a symbol of the earth because it's actually down at, it's near the, Red, uh, the Dead Sea, right? So it's actually below sea level, right? The lowest city on earth. That's sort of its claim to fame if you go there as a tourist, right? So it represents we fall to the lowest place we can go. Yeah, the 20th century is full of that, right? More people put to death by Nazism and communism, both in Stalinist Russia and, and, and Maoist China, right? And, and then in all the cent- previous centuries of human existence put together, when they calculate the amount of people intentionally put to death, like 100 million between those events that I described. There's also the, you know, the genocide of the Armenians and the Assyrians and other tragedies that we could add to that, right? So we know that this world, as many, many, many blessings that we have, thanks be to God and the peace and freedom to gather, even be in this place right now, which as we never have time to forget, is not the case in Egypt, Right? Just when you think things have calmed down, boom, there's another, another massacre, right? Another, another busload of children that's, that's, that's attacked, you know? I'm, I'll be really honest right now. I'm struggling. One of, my, uh, you know, one of my daughters is not into going to church at all. And she's like, you know, I don't, I don't really see why I have to go to church. And, uh, and uh, my, you know, my relationship with God is very unique. And, uh, uh, and I said to her, I said, do you realize? So this is like a luxury, and I did say it in this tone of voice, I was trying to control myself, you know. I was like, I'm okay, yes, uh, your relationship with God is unique. And, uh, you know, trying to affirm her. She's like, she's an adult now, you know, so I'm trying to, like, respect her freedom, which is what God does with us, right? But still, my fatherly heart's, like, feeling the ache, right, you know. And she's like, yeah, they just, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I think I'm doing pretty well with my relationship with God, you know. I said, you realize, I'm going to speak to the cop to church tonight. And there's people, they will risk their life to go to church. You risk your life to go to the monastery. It's like literally a chance that they will get shot just because they're going out the door going to church. That's how much they realize that they need to be in that place, right? To be with the people of God. That their relationship with God is not just you and God, right? It's not just me and Jesus, right? I am because we are. We are because he is, right? So this, the, the world is... is, uh, is a mess. And things, you know, if we don't see it on a day-to-day level, it's because God is in his mercy sparing us, right, from the worst of it. But you don't have to look far, talk to too many people before you realize how much suffering there is, And humanity falls among robbers, Christendom, as as, uh, as the parable says. And Christendom says, yeah, you know what, that's like the passions. We are assaulted by the passions. That is, those things in us those t- that, that tempt us to do evil, right? The Greek fathers identify eight of them, right? Gluttony and avarice and wrath, achidea, listlessness, and others, right? They, they tempt us. And it's like they, they're not really, they're not persons, but they're things, as it were, they're, they're, they're inclinations, you could say, that are also, that are, that are sort of strengthened by the assault of the demons, for sure. We believe that the demons attack us. And in fact, the closer you get to God, the more of the demons are going to attack you. So if you're not feeling very attacked by the demons, you might say, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I'm not feeling good attacked by the demons. Well, guess what? St. Anthony, when he was in the cave, he was attacked by the demons. And it was not because he was, like, not thinking about God. Right? It's precisely because he was trying to get close to God. The demons are doubling down on him, okay? So, you know, you can feel a little bit it's like a mixed blessing. Like, I wake up, you don't feel attacked by the demons. Like, thank you, Lord, I'm not feeling attacked by the demons. But then you think, maybe it's because, you know, 
I guess I'm not that close to holiness that they're not bothering with me because I'm small fry. But anyways, I am attacked by the passions, that's for sure. I don't know about you, but it just day doesn't go by where I'm feeling those temptations, right? And th- these, these attack us and they wound us, right? And sometimes when we let them go all their way, they leave us for dead, right? They strip us of the robe of immortality. So the man in the parable, he's left to die by these passions, right? By these inclinations to sin that get actualized in our life, right? And someone has to help him. Now, Chrysostom says, and Chrysostom can be a little bit anti say, a little bit anti-Semitic at times, or he just be rather harsh, as many of the fathers are on, on the Jewish people. Um, I don't necessarily want to reinforce that, but, that, but in the thrust of it in the context of the parable is they say that the people of Israel kept to themselves. They didn't really share the light, right? They did not become the light to the nations. That is the prophecy of Isaiah and elsewhere that this, the prophets say, you are to be the light to the nations, right? And so they, they are given the promise, but it's not fulfilled, right? And someone else has to come, and the fathers say, Christ is the Samaritan, the guy who comes from somewhere else, right? Samaria to the north, not from the Jewish point of view, part of the chosen people, right? Those weird Samaritans who only have the first five books of the scriptures, right, in their own translation, and kind of broke off from the rest of uh, the rest of the Jewish people. And so Christ is like the Samaritan because he's the person you wouldn't expect, right? We wouldn't expect. The Jews themselves didn't know, recognize that this was the Messiah, right? And even those who thought he was the Messiah didn't think he was actually God, not until after his resurrection, Right? Even the apostles aren't kind of sure what's going on. Even St. Thomas is like, I'm not really sure. This doesn't seem very believable to me. Right? Right? He says to the other apostles, I don't think a resurrection thing happened here. Right? He has to see it. And Tom, Jesus has to say, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. Right? So Christ comes into this world and he's even accused of being a Samaritan. It's kind of like an insult. Right? You're a Samaritan. Like you're a nobody. Like you're a schmuck from there and you are not you don't really know what's going on right and this is how the pharisees and sadducees like they are not they're not accepting this guy right jesus comes and he is comes from somewhere else and he is the one who actually to all everyone's surprise including the the apostles is the one who will actually be able to save the wounded human being right that is all of us the humans save us from the human condition he joins his divine nature to our nature right this is the, the key type thing that Athanasius will be kept being exiled for. It's just like, you know, Arius is like, it's okay, we can have an angel do the work. He's like, no, we cannot. Like, it has to be God, right? It only, when it is, only that which is human, only, only God can save us, and only somebody who's truly human can save us, right? It has to be God who saves us, but the person who is saved has to be us, and therefore he has to be one with us as well. He has to be fully God and fully man. This is what the Creed of Nicaea has to struggle to get through, right? To preserve this, this cardinal, the essential truth of, of the faith, right? Christ joins to mankind his own divine nature and brings us into the hospital, we might say, of the church and gives us these sanctifying, deifying mysteries, right? To raise us up to himself. Since men are sick, wounded by sin, heal them. Christum says, Jesus is saying this to all of us. 
putting on a stone plaster, that is the prophetic sayings and the gospel teachings, making them whole through the admonitions and exhortations of the Old and New Testaments. It's the scriptures, it's the holy mysteries, it's the life of the church, right? This is the inn where the wounded man is taken. And yes, in one sense, the, you know, Christ entrusts this work to the apostles, but in all of us share in this in some way, right? Through the royal priesthood, right? The priesthood of all the baptized. So, and here I come to my conclusion. What is not assumed is not healed. Right? What is not taken off is not healed. I'm sure you've heard that time and time again, probably in, in preaching in this church. God became human, that human beings might become God. Not God by nature, but God by grace. This is what salvation is about. We describe it in all those ways I said, as justification, vindication, liberation, and so forth, right? And it's beyond the grasp of the ken of any one of us to take in this mystery, right? So don't feel bad, right? If somebody asks you, your neighbor asks you, oh, what do you go to church for on Sunday? Um, nice people, yes. Great priests, good. Wonderful singing, excellent. Yummy food afterwards, like it. Hoping to meet a nice girl, meet a nice guy, it's a good place to get married. That's good too, right? All of those are good reasons, right? And, and, but the heart of it is because we want to be saved. We have been saved in the baptismal font, right? We're being saved by being deified week after week, day after day, by receiving the truth of the scriptures, sanctifying our minds, and the Holy Eucharist, sanctifying our bodies, right? And we will be saved. Each one of us will come to the door of death, and please God, we, he finds us, you know, um, I'm sure you have prayers for this, we in the Byzantine, right? We have many prayers for this, you know, to grant us a peaceful death, a peaceful death, right? And you may be of your body lie in this very church and have Abuna, you know, Kirillus and, and Abuna Yusuf and Abuna John uh, uh, praying over you, commending your soul and your body, right, to the Lord who will raise us up on the last day. And that whole cycle, that story, right, in a sense, each of our lives is like recapitulating this story of the scriptures of creation, the fall, the restoration, and ultimate consummation. And every time we come here, everything we do here is in some way to kind of participate in that. It might be by singing a song, it might be by offering a prayer, it might be by serving a meal, it might be by, you know, teaching a child or teaching an adult, it might be by painting an icon. Everything we're doing, we're participating in some way in this great story of salvation. Easter is the turning point of this story for sure, but the nativity, which we're preparing for right now, is the beginning, right? This beginning of salvation when our Lord comes into the world in the body and begins this process of salvation. This is my last slide, and then I have some questions for you. This is St. Augustine, and I'll ask Abuna to read it because he's talking about physician, and I thought this is really cool. Uh, so I thought Abuna especially would like this bit from, from St. Augustine where he compares salvation to, to, to the work of a physician. No one who considers his frailty would dare to attribute to his own strength his chastity and innocence, so that he has less cause to love you. If man is called by you, follows your voice, and has avoided doing those acts which I am recalling and avowing in my own life, he should not mock the healing of a sick man by the physician whose help has kept him from falling sick or at least enabled him to be less gravely ill. 
He should love you no less, indeed even more, for he who sees that the one who delivered me from the great sickness of my sins is also he through, through whom he may see that he himself has not been a victim of the same great sickness. Mm. So if there's things, you know, that uh, got St. Augustine, if you read his confessions, amazing, because the guy, like, he did some pretty nasty stuff. And he tells you about it, right? And he says, and if you're not feeling that you have done all these things, if you haven't done these things, and therefore you're not feeling bad about that, and you're not feeling, well, you know, I, that you need to be saved, think about the fact that you were saved from having to be saved from those things, right? So you didn't go do those bad things. Well, good for you. Who do you think prevented you from doing that, right? That's God saving you from yourself, right? So St. Augustine, everybody here needs to be healed. And if some of us are, have not yet you know, I had the misfortune, as it were, of falling sick, that is nonetheless that health, that salvation is due to the divine physician. So I'll leave you with some questions, and I don't know how, um, uh, how what the, what's customary here. You could just take these and think on them in silence, or if you want to have some discussion, or, you know, take them home, and we'll send the presentation, and people can just reflect on them. Where do you experience injury, right, of sin in your own life? I think everyone is different in that, you know? People have different struggles, right? I think everyone feels that pain, but in different ways. Everyone has their cross, we might say, right? Do you experience the holy mysteries as healing? Yes, of course, the, the politically correct answer is, of course I do. But we all know that maybe we, we don't for various reasons, right? Church isn't always, as my daughter, as I'm seeing, you know, it's like, she can church her whole life, and yet I'm thinking, like, how many times she received communion? How many times she gone to confession? Like, how many times has she experienced the love of God? And so, why isn't that enough? Like, why? Like, what's wrong? You know, like, why is she being a prodigal? You know, <laughs> and um, I don't understand it. So, but clearly, there's some disconnect. You know, she's not experiencing something, and I'm sure your priests are like praying always. It's on their mind. Like, how can they help? How can they? be the instruments that God wants them to be? How can they, as it were, get out of the way and allow the love of God to, to flow, the power of God to flow? And it could be very practical things, you know, that in some, you know, somebody doesn't feel that they can follow the service. Maybe there's a language issue. Maybe it's a cultural issue. Maybe there's a social issue, class issue, or something like that. Um, there's all sorts of reasons that people don't feel at home in our churches, and they therefore, in turn, don't experience, you know, the holy mysteries in the way that Christ intends us to, right? But if they are, as the Second Vatican Council in its document on the Holy Liturgy talked about the Eucharist as the source and summit of the Christian faith. There's a whole mountain in between, but the Eucharist is the source and it's the summit, right? So there's lots of other ways that we experience the ministry of Christ, and maybe we need to reflect on that more often. You know, before I was coming here tonight, I was with a certain amount of fear and trembling, because I was, uh, you know, thinking, oh man, I'm coming at the end of this week, and you guys are probably some amazing speakers, and like, and I respect Abuna so much, so I went to confession today just to be sure that I was like as ready as I could be. I was the one thing, get the mind ready, get the present PowerPoint ready. I thought, well, I better go to confession just to make sure, get, get my heart ready as, as, as ready as I can, you know. Um, and um, so, uh, we, you know, there, we, we all, we experience the holy mysteries in, in, uh, as a source of healing, but there's perhaps many other ways that we, we experience that healing, and we need, oh, this is why I was saying that, and the priest, yeah, I was going to say, and, when, and, and part of the penance you know, said to me, I'm not going to tell you the sins, I'll just tell you the penance, <laughs> so he says to me, he says, you need to kind of take some time in prayer and like, think of all your blessings, thank God 
for your blessings, you know? Take time to be grateful. It's like, ah, oh, simple, give me something more challenging, you know? Like, no, but actually, maybe that's the problem, right? Maybe that God is actually working in my life and I'm just not, like, paying attention, right? I'm not aware. I'm so busy complaining about X, Y, Z that I don't realize that I've got blessings. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, etc. right? All these other blessings in my life that God is, like, giving me, you know, saving me, right, in ways that I'm not even aware of. And finally, then, how do we, each of us, how do we be like the hands of God, right? The feet, right? How do we participate in the salvation of others? It's not a coincidence that the word salvation means health and healing. Salus in Latin, health, right? A salve, we say in English, like an old antiquated word for like, uh, like, a, like medicine that you like, uh, a lotion that you apply to a wound is a salve, right? So God's salvation is not going to just come to the world with us being passive recipients. We have to be the agents of healing the wounds of others. Right? There's, and when Abuna was a doctor, there was things that he could go, places he could go and things that he alone could do, Right? But that's the case for all of us. There's places only each of you can go. Houses only where you will go. Friendships of which only you will be a part. Conversations into which only you will be invited, right? Secrets which only you will be told. People whose burdens will only be shared with each of you. And it won't do at that moment to say, oh, go talk to Abuna. Because maybe that person doesn't want to talk to Abuna. Maybe they are afraid to talk to Abuna. Maybe they just, they don't know him and they're not going to do that. They're going to tell you. They're going to trust you. They're going to, uh, you know, ask you for help. And the challenge I suppose for each of us is like, is that discernment. Like, Lord, are you, um, you calling me now to be part of your work of salvation? And like, make me worthy to always be ready to be that salve, right? To be the nurse, so to speak, right? To help the doctor in the work that he wants to do. That he will, that he seeks, as the scriptures say, God, God uh, loves uh, the world, you know, and and God desires that all be saved, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in Him not perish but have eternal life. Thank you so much, my brothers and sisters. It was a, a, gr- a great honor, and I, if, if I have shared with you from my own poverty, and if anything is, you know, uh, anything has been worth retaining, I thank God for that. And if anything has caused you pain or scandal, um, please forgive me. And Abunas will set you straight. They can uh, next time <laughs> they can correct anything that I, or if I may have misspoken. So shukran, get them.